0: word, our text. Our text today comes from Haggai chapter 2 verses 10 through 19. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priest about the law. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body touches any of these, does it become unclean? The priest answered and said, it does become unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, So is it with this people, and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, and what they offer there is unclean. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, there were but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. Consider from this day onward, from the twenty-fourth day of the ninth month, since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, but from this day on I will bless you. This is our text today.
1: Okay, may be seated. Thank you so much. <clears throat> this is one of those passages that are hard to read. It's like, welcome to church. <laughs> it's, um, it's a difficult portion of scripture to kind of soak in. And before we get into it, I just want to welcome again um, anyone who might be new for the first time. I just want to encourage you, if you're a member of our church, after church, just go meet someone that, um, that might be new, that might be a guest. Um, just welcome them to our church, and maybe even just someone that you don't know that well. Just interact with each other, and just um, get to know each other. It's a fun thing to do. So, But welcome. Uh, my, my good friend Lee is here. Um, I've known Lee for a very long time, so just want to... <laughs> Publicly embarrass him. So, um, <laughs> thanks for being here. But, but, and also keep in mind Easter's coming up. Easter's a really awesome time of year where people that don't believe in Jesus go to church for some reason. So, um, so, so just be encouraged by this time coming up. Get friends and family to come. Um, I'm gonna probably have some little invites to uh, to our service next week available so that we can start passing those out. Just think. Just be writing names down of people that you know. Um, that would that that might come to church with you because it's Easter, you know. Maybe even make a day of it. You know, like we're gonna have, go back to your house afterwards and have ham or something, and you know. So, so it's gonna be a lot of fun, and we're gonna have a great time, and um, it, it's a really uh, unique opportunity to be able to talk to people about the gospel and share your faith with with them. So, so yeah. Also, um, I I wanted to just reinforce something that was said. We really want to see uh, more people come out to our prayer nights on Thursday night. I know not, that not everyone can and if, and if that's you don't feel guilt or feel judged. But if you can, uh, come on out and, and enjoy that night. Prayer is so important to what we do. Uh, we're not going to succeed in anything we do unless we're praying so I just want to encourage you to come out and pray. And sometimes it's just so healing for us personally too, right? Like we're just going through it and we need someone to pray for us. Don't hide. We, I don't know if you're like me but when I'm going through it, I hide. Um, I lock the door, I, I go to a place where no one is, you know, so, and that is so counterproductive to healing. So just come out and, um, and be with us and we'll pray f- for you and with you. And also just remember too, just remember our building situation, you know, we're, we're kind of in a little bit of a transition, be praying for that. Um, pray for God's wisdom to know where we should go, what town we should go to, what you know, all these details, lease agreements, and, you know, just on and on it goes, and we just want wisdom. So just pray that God directs us well. And it's it's so good to be here with you today on the Lord's Day. Um, I hope that your hearts are prepared to hear from God's Word and to worship Christ. Uh, Starting in verse 10 of chapter 2, we have our third message in the book of Haggai that the Lord has given to Haggai to give to the people of Israel. So we're on message number three. If you look at the book of Haggai, in total there are four messages that God gives... To Haggai to deliver to the people of Israel. There are four messages. So it's nice and clean, nice and easy to preach through. So we're on the third message right now. Last week we were on the second message. And that, if you remember, last week's message basically encouraged the remnant of Israel to, be, to continue on in their work. That the coming glory was greater uh, to anticipate any past glory They had become discouraged in rebuilding the temple because they didn't think it was as cool. It wasn't as nice didn't have as much gold. So they just started feeling like what are we doing? We're spinning our wheels. This isn't as, this isn't what it used to be. And we talked a little bit about the glory days mentality last week and how we can slip into that. That God has a purpose and a plan for us right now, that there is a glory coming that is greater than all past glories that we've ever experienced. So we were encouraged to take up our work for God and Christ and his kingdom that we build more than we see. This third message from the Lord comes two months afterwards. If you look in our text, it tells us actually when this message came to Haggai to give to Israel. And it's followed by one more message, that's gonna be our message next week. This third message serves as a warning. It almost parallels some of the warnings that we saw from God to Israel in chapter one of Haggai. It serves as a warning to the believing and hard-working remnant of Israel. They had started working. They had listened to Haggai, and they started working again. They started feeling the encouragement of the Lord. And then a warning, a reminder came to them from God, and that's our message today. It's hard to hear. It's going to be hard for us to hear this message, I think. It's hard for me to hear, I know that. But it's also very, very liberating and very encouraging. So just kind of ride this wave with me to the end, because you're going to hear some hard things. But at the end, I think that you'll be blessed and encouraged. Um, and, and we basically learned two things about this, this passage. Number one, that sin has a high cost and is powerfully contagious. Sin has a high cost and is powerfully contagious. And the second lesson that we learned from this text, it's very simple. God is patient in our weakness and he gives us grace when we repent in spite of our failings. Amen. Those are the two themes that we see that we need to hold on to, the the takeaways of this message that you need to remember and apply to your life personally. So first, let's look at these contagious effects of sin. Um, And that's the, um, the title of the message today, The Contagious Effects of Sin. In our text, we have an unusual and what for some might seem like a difficult, perhaps wrong way to live the Christian life. We read this passage, and a lot of times the way that we're trained, we we look at this passage, we're confused by it. In our text, the Lord is reminding Israel of the consequence of their sin. He's telling Israel to remember how a life that is not submitted to the Lord's will, to the Lord's purpose, to the Lord's um, pleasure, how this fares for them, what the resulting consequence of it is in their lives. And just kind of consider this the consequences of sin in their lives and how, how you've seen that as a Christian in your life play out. For some of us as Christians, it's not really the usual way that we deal with the, the struggle that we have with sin, the hold that it has on our lives. It's not the usual way that we deal with personal weakness and temptation. It, it's, it sounds kinda hard, doesn't it? It sounds kinda unloving. It sounds kind of ungracious. One stream of scripture, these are, the, these are the scriptures we usually go to as evangelicals when, when we start feeling like we're, we've fallen and we're being tempted by sin. It's basically those passages of scripture that motivate the spiritual life to be lived by grace. You probably are familiar, familiar with this, and amen for this. This grace stream of scripture, the solution for the presence of sin, is to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ we've sinned, we've failed, remember that he accepts you on the basis of Christ that it's forgiven and buried in the deepest sea. Amen. Beautiful. That's true. That's true. Because all the work that's necessary to forgive your sin has been accomplished on the cross. We are not to feel like um we're not to feel bad that's not the right way to say it. We're not to feel that um th- that our failings have somehow made God love us less. You follow? Because we rest in the finished work of Jesus. Jesus' love for us is absolute. We cannot make him love us less, even though we failed. We all know this message. This is the grace message. We were all trained very well in it, and it's a beautiful message. And we go to passages of Scripture. If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. Right? Resting in this work, in this grace is the power that we have to overcome sin. Amen. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. Amen. So we know this. And sometimes, because we know this, we don't really know what to do with texts like we just tripped over just now. Because it doesn't seem like God is saying, Israel, I love you in spite of your sin. It's forgiven, so get up and continue. He's saying, Israel, your sin has train wrecked your life. So stop doing it. (laughs) So we're kind of missing the... The gospel in that almost. Seemingly. It's there. And we'll get to that in a moment. And this is this other stream of scripture that we see that tends in our minds to seem contradictory, but it's not. This is the stream of scripture that defines the spiritual life and our motivation for repentance quite differently. Or seemingly differently. Namely, to consider the effects of sin as it has power over our life. And that is basically that sin destroys, it hurts, it corrupts, and it has awful consequences. Our desire to not live in God's discipline is, motivates us to repentance. You see, so we have this grace motivation on the one hand, and the fear of God's discipline on the other. Right? And we try to reconcile these things. Both, both of these messages are in the Bible. Both of these streams are there. And I believe that there are two streams that are be, really form into one stream. They seem on the surface to contradict, but they don't. They exist in balance. And I think the word love explains that balance. It explains how both are gracious and both are hard. The, the grace that motivates us to turn from our sin is hard. And we'll get to this in a second. And the hard motivations that br- take us from our sin are gracious. They both exist in both streams. That balances love. Let me explain. In a truly loving relationship, you have to have forgiveness and discipline. If it's really, ha- if love is really pre- um, present, there has to be. So, for example, if you love your children, you're both gonna want to forgive their sin when they fail, to take the blow yourself. To not hold it against them, but also at the same time be outraged by that very same sin. If you really love them, that's going to be the process that starts happening in your mind. To not be outraged by sin would have to mean that we don't think sin is really hurting them. Right? Right? to not be outraged by the mistakes for God not to be outraged by the mistakes we make would have to mean either that he thinks that sin isn't that big a deal or that he does think it's that big a deal and he withholds discipline because he doesn't love us. Right? We don't um, to to claim we love someone and then not to be outraged by the, the, the stranglehold that sin has on their life when something or someone unjustly harms the object of our love, this would be no demonstration of love at all. Right? That's why scripture tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves. It seems hard. It seems like we have this picture of God that he's just angry at us and he wants to smush us. But really when his discipline comes it's because he's rescuing us from the, the, the bankruptcy that we often find ourselves in because of our own sin and rebellion. So for God not to be outraged by our sin would have to mean that he just doesn't love us. For God not to discipline us would have to mean that He doesn't love us. So, in the punishment of God, you see this is what I was saying earlier? That we find grace and love. Isn't it gracious then that God disciplines us? Isn't it gracious then that we, when we find God sometimes being hard and causing negative consequences to happen, isn't that gracious of Him? It implies very strongly. Excuse me. <clears throat> the very fact that sin needs to be forgiven. Now just kind of wrap your mind around this idea. The very fact that sin has to be forgiven, that we have been made new, that old things have been passed away, implies very strongly that our past is a problem and is an outrage to God. It Doesn't it? Why would we need to be made new if there was no problem with the old? Right? So because God is outraged, because sin is an awful offense to him, but because he also loves us, he does something about it. He takes it away, he makes us new, and he accepts us on the basis of Christ and his work on the cross. He does not stop at outrage. He doesn't just say, I'm angry with you, and that's the end of it. He doesn't stop there. He loves us, and He offers us forgiveness. Amen? We also need to remember that the reason that we are to be motivated to turn from sin is just as important as the turning itself. So the reason that, that you stop something that you know is wrong, the reason why you stop it, is just as important as stopping it. Does that make sense? As God is motivated by love and his outrage towards sin and in his forgiveness of it, we must be motivated by love in our turning from sin. Let me explain. If we repent of our sin simply because of the consequences of sin, simply because something bad's going to happen and we don't want the bad thing to happen, it doesn't necessarily mean that we understand that sin's a problem. Does that make sense? Let me explain. Take for example in a marriage, we got some married people here, right? It's fun, isn't it? You married people, <laughs> it can be, but then there are other times where you got to duck. <laughs> so you say you say something really dumb, and that's usually the, the man ducking too, by the way. <laughs> right? So, um, so so a married you're married and you've done it. You've blown it big time. And your wife said, and imagine, just kind of, I'm making, making light of some, some of this, but just kind of get heavy with, with me for a moment. Let's say you just blew it big time. And there's betrayal. And your wife basically says, I'm out. I'm gone. I'm leaving. Right? And you say, I won't do it again. It won't happen again. But really in your heart, you want to do it again. Right? So, so love hasn't motivated the change. The consequence motivated the change. You're not doing it because you love that person. You're doing it just because you don't want the, the, the results. <clears throat> it's simply a try, trying to just avoid consequence. But you cherish the sins still. You, you still love it. You still coddle it. So either the pledge. And, and this is always what happens too. By the way, when that's your spirit. When that's your heart. When you change because of a co- consequence. And not because you love that person. And you see that that. That, that, that behavior has hurt that person, what happens is you, you start to despise that person because they get in the way of the thing that you want. And over time, either you'll start doing the behavior again and hide it, so they don't see you doing it, or you'll just start to hate them. Right? So the reason you stop doing a thing, the reason you say, God, I'm not gonna do that sin anymore, it's just, do you do it because you love God, or do you do it because you want his stuff? And isn't this the older brother? You guys remember the story of the older and the younger brother? The younger brother and the older brother, neither of them loved God, the the father. The younger brother used rebellion um, to get the dad's stuff. He said, Dad, give give me my money. I'm out of here. I don't love you. I'm out. And he leaves. The older brother used obedience. He said, dad, when the, and remember, because when the younger brother comes back, what does he say? You know, dad, you've never given me a party. And I've been here my whole life. He's using obedience to get dad's stuff. He doesn't care that he's with dad. See, this, that's the heart issue when it comes to sin, why do you stop doing it? Is it just because, you know, life isn't going good or is it because you love Jesus and you know that it affects your relationship with him? Why you repent is just as important as the repenting itself. And as a matter of fact, it is no repentance at all if your heart is not right in that repentance. Amen? If you're motivated to repentance, not out of love, it is no repentance at all but selfishness. So in our text we can notice two basic themes. Number one, there is a high cost of sin. And number two, there is riches of his undeserved favor in spite of our sin. So let's look at the high cost of sin. Our text tells us that sin has a high price. First, number one, the effects of sin are highly contagious. Now I have uh, a two-month-old baby now. And my wife and I are both very aware, because our doctors taught us this, that they are very susceptible to contagions. So if you've got a sniffle, we're not hanging out with you. Right? How many people have met married people with kids that you just don't see them anymore because they're afraid to go outside? <laughs> right? Sometimes we take that a little bit too far, but that's just the reality of it, right? That there is a contagion out there that we can catch. And scripture talks about sin with respect to this. There's, the effects of sin are highly contagious. This is verses 11-14. through 14. Haggai draws this out by asking the priests about certain laws in the Old Testament. And there is one law, number one, that holiness cannot be transferred from one object to another. It says in verse 12, if someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it become holy? The priest answered and said, no. See, these priests were smart priests. They knew their Bibles. Objects considered holy in the Old Testament sacrificial system basically meant that it was set apart for use in the temple. I had some other meetings too, but let's just deal with that one. So if you made a bowl holy, it meant that you could only use it for the purpose of God in the temple. You couldn't eat Cheerios at home with it. right? Then you would make it unholy. And you would have to purify it again through rituals that they had set up. Often there's a process of identifying or making objects holy or clean for use for God in the temple. When we're declared clean... Oh, excuse me, when they were declared clean or holy, this holiness didn't transfer to common or neutral objects that they might have touched that were neither clean nor unclean, such as in our text the fold of a garment. So because that item was in the fold of the garment, that didn't make the fold of the garment holy. Because that, uh, the item that was in the fold of the garment was holy. The second law, so that's law number one. A holy thing, when it touches something neutral doesn't make that neutral thing holy. Okay. The second law <clears throat> that the thing that he or the object that is ceremonially unclean or unholy by the touch of a dead body for example does by this touch to another object communicate that unholiness. So in the Old Testament system if a dead body touches me I become unholy. Right? I was neither holy nor I was neither clean nor unclean, but that uncleanness is transferred to me. see, it's different. It's a different rule. Holiness does not trans- transfer to a neutral object in the Old, old Testament, but unholiness does. <clears throat> so for a garment that's touched by something unclean, a dead body, then the garment will transfer that uncleanness to some chair that it might lie on. And what's the takeaway for us? So, all right, Okay, this is all kind of you know, priesty and sacrificially, and I don't get that. You know, like what does that even mean? Maybe you're a Christian here, you don't really understand this. Here's the principle, here's the takeaway for us. That pollution is more easily communicated to something or someone than holiness. Pollution is more easily communicated than sanctification. <clears throat> it easily influences those around us. So please hear that. Please don't let's not go fast by that. Gossip anger, lying, an unwillingness to forgive, bitterness, lust, you name it. It's easily communicated to the people around us. It affects the people around us, what it touches. It affects, according to our scripture, the things that we do for God himself. So we can't think that because we do good works for God, working for his kingdom, we're all starting a church here, right? That's nice. That's, that's kingdom stuff. Good work. God's in heaven. Good job, guys. You're starting a church for me. You're spreading the gospel message. We can't think that just because we're doing that, that somehow that makes us right with him. That holy thing doesn't transfer to us and make us good. You follow me? The heart makes us like that. It doesn't necessarily mean our hearts are right with him because we're doing, you're all in church. Maybe I'm not planting a church with you, Kyle, but you're all in church. And for some of us, we think that we've done a good thing for God, and you have done a good thing for God. But is your heart right? The exercise of our spiritual gifts as Christians does not mean that we are right with God in our hearts. Okay? Just because we observe the Lord's Day, like I just said, doesn't mean that we're here for the right reasons. So I can speak with the tongues of angels. But if I have not love, it profit me nothing. And, and often for us as Christians, our holy meat, that we think that when it touches us, it makes us holy, of <laughs> things that we do for God. Kingdom works that we do for God. I go to church, I read my Bible, I'm around Christians. So that must mean I'm doing all those things. That must mean I'm good, I'm right, I'm holy. But it doesn't. <clears throat> Let me, let me give you another example. I'm exercising a gift that I think God has given me to preach God's word. Now if I see this church as a consequence, grow, more people start coming. It would be easy for me to think, alright, I'm good. God's, God is good with me. But is that true if every day of my life I go home and I'm looking at pornography? I mean, couldn't I be doing that? could I just be lying to all of you? Couldn't I be coddling and secretly living in sin? But I'm using, I'm exercising some spiritual gifts. So I, I almost kind of feel like God, well, God doesn't really care about that. Because he's, he's bringing fruit. It's so easy for us to do that in our culture too. Because we connect God's approval for us or just anyone's approval for us based on our successes. If, we do, if it grows, if, it's, if it makes a profit, then we must be doing life right. But many, the Bible says, will come to me on that day. And the Lord will say, I never knew you. So that's, uh, didn't we prophesy in your name, though? That's got to mean that there are people in pulpits like this one preaching the gospel, teaching God's word that aren't even God's kids, that aren't even His children. He never knew them. And this is a great mystery, isn't it? That we can be so close to holy things and not be holy ourselves. Isn't that mysterious? Friend, on what basis do you believe that you're right with God this morning? Is it because of some work that you're doing or is it because Jesus has declared it so through his son? Is it the holy things that you're around, that you touch, that form the basis of your own security with God? Or have you recognized the bankruptcy of your own heart and your need to be washed clean by God himself? <clears throat> and, we, and, and we find the reverse to have a different effect as well. That our sincere efforts for Christ, our love for him can be soured by allowing things that are wicked into our purview. We watch movies. We just have no business watching. And I confess this to you. I so easily justify film for some reason. I don't know why I do it, but I do it. That, I can, that we can watch movies with all sorts of filth and think that it just doesn't affect us. That we're okay, but it does. When God says no and we say yes, we've found the thing we worship really. The true God instead of the Lord God. Chuck Swindoll made this illustration. This is good. Um, When um, when you put a white glove in mud, the glove becomes muddy. Right? But when you put a white glove in mud, the mud does not become glovey. <laughs> Guard your heart, friends. Guard what you see, what you hear. Now, I, I am not advocating to become weird. I am not saying that we become completely isolated from anything that the world might do. I think that is an extreme that is not in Scripture. I think there's beauty and lots of things that come from people that don't know Jesus that we can appreciate. But just be careful. Be careful because it's easy to just kind of let things that we know we shouldn't be doing into our hearts and our minds and justify it. And our gloves are getting muddy. As we work for God, the secret sins that we don't confess, the second lives we live... The proud motivations that are often present in our kingdom work pollute what it touches. We need to be as a group confessing our sin to each other. Because if the Lord is going to say to Refuge Church one day, well done, good and faithful, good and faithful service, servants, it's not because we don't sin or fail. It's because we're honest. It's because we know the problem of our own sin. We confess it to each other. That living life like that doesn't pollute us. That's, that's all of us. It's, it's the, the justifications, the hiding, the loving, the coddling of sin. We need to have a place where we can, we, we can be honest with each other. To confess to each other. Haggai reminded God's people that the condition of their heart was just as important as the work that they did for God. Amen. Amen. So it is with this people and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands, everything they offer is unclean. Matthew Henry said this. Matthew Henry is an old Puritan. um, And he always has great insights. I I go to him often. He says, those whose devotions are plausible, but whose conversation is wicked. Wow. Wow. Stop there and be like, yep, that's me. Almost every day. Those whose devotions are plausible, but whose conversation is wicked, will find their devotions unable to sanctify their enjoyments, but their wickedness prevailing to pollute them. When we are employed in any good work, we should be jealous over ourselves, lest we render it unclean by our corruptions and mismanagements. Now what what does Henry mean here? Now, sometimes when I read these old Puritan guys, I'm like, what? I'm tripping over words and I have to get, grab the dictionary, and I'm really just kind of confused. That happened when I read this. And, and chances are, I just read this to you, and you don't know what he's talking about either. <laughs> right, like you're just a little bit confused because of the, the high English and the, just the way that, they're, that he's talking about things. So what does he mean here? Let me try to explain. Even though we're busy with kingdom work, Even though we're doing kingdom stuff, the sin that we refuse to turn from not only corrupts the kingdom work we do, but it touches every other facet of our life. That's what he's saying. So for example, how does a married man hide a pornography addiction without it affecting his kingdom work and also his marriage to his wife? And every other relationship he has, by the way. That's what it does. It starts to infiltrate every facet of our life. It begins to break down our lives in general. So so Henry says, you need to be jealous over yourself. Isn't that interesting? Lest we render everything unclean by our pollution. In other words, we should be more important to us than we are. (laughs) That doesn't sound right, right? I'm like, wait a minute, I know my Bible. That sounds selfish. We should be more important to us than we are. Let me explain. If our ultimate joy and fulfillment and happiness in life is found in our relationship with Christ, our connection with the presence of God, then we should be just as outraged by our own sin and moved to change for our own sake. You see? For our own happiness. For our own good. You see, if we really believe sin bankrupts us, strips us of gladness, then for our own sake and for God's own glory, wouldn't we want to turn from it? See, that's what I think he means here. And I want to emphasize again that I don't think this scripture is telling us that Christians who struggle with sin are polluting the group around them or, or, or ruining their lives. He's not referring to repenting Christians, but to hardened ones. There's a difference. Repent, repenting Christians fail and struggle. right? We all, we, and we, but, but the difference is we know it and we're bothered by it. We're not hardened to it. We don't love it. We don't cherish it. The hardened cherish their sin. They hide it. They rejoice in it. They don't want to give it up unless they get caught. And then when they get caught, they just hide it better. So what what idols still charm us? What is that thing that you're still holding on to, that you know is wrong, that you know you need to confess to a brother or sister in Christ and turn from, but you haven't? Can you give it up today? Can you see that the gladness of your heart, your own life depends on it? What idols charm you? What secret adulteries of the heart seduce your minds? Isn't the Creator King, the Bridegroom, isn't he better than those things? So our sin is is highly contagious. And secondly, God disciplines our sin by giving to us fruitless toil. Verses 15 through 19. Let me just kind of reread this so we remember it. Now then consider from this day onward before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of twenty measures, there were but ten. When one came to the wine vat to draw fifty measures, There are but twenty. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail yet you did not turn to me declares the Lord. Well, We'll just stop there. Isn't the hard heart just so hard? That when God shows us time and time again, that it doesn't work. How's it working for you, in other words? Let me summarize this passage. You are, you are turning from God because you, your heart, you think your heart can be, find gladness in something besides Him, and it doesn't. The 50 measures is 20. The 20 measures is 10. It never works. And you still refuse to turn to God. I've been that person so many times. I, th- I, I, I think that some object will delight my heart and fill me with joy and gladness and fulfillment and it never does and instead of pursuing Jesus Christ with that same passion I decide I'll just try something else besides God. We're nuts! We're crazy and then To add insult to injury, when I I have those moments in my life where I'm drinking from the well of life and Jesus Christ, and I I feel the joy and gladness that is incomparable, for some reason two months later, I'm done with it. I turn back. And this is that cycle that that we are in sometimes, and this is the cycle that Israel is in. It's easy to, to think that when you read this passage, that, you know, obey God or he'll smush you. Right? We just kind of get that out of it. Because there's economic opposition, there's opposition in nature that we see in the scripture. Right? The, the blight, mildew, hail. They're, they're getting less crops than, the, than they were expecting to get. And Haggai emphasizes that every day they've neglected the temple, they're met with God's discipline. And like I said, it's easy to miss something here. You might, you might just get the message that if you disobey God, He's going to take away the stuff that you like? If you obey him, he'll give you stuff that you like. It's kind of like that's where our mind goes. And that's to miss the point entirely. We have to remember that in chapter 1, when opposite, they were building the temple, and when opposition came, what did they do? They ran away, and they started paneling their houses. This showed them, this was an, uh, identified to them what was the condition of their heart, who they were really worshipping, and seeking out for gladness. They thought they would be more satisfied and more happy with paneled houses, with created things over the Creator. Prosperity. Money. If they had that, they'll be good. So when opposition came in their work, they stopped working and went to the thing that they truly worshipped. Does that make sense? So God in his kindness, God in his kindness, puts his finger on the thing that they worship because he loves them. He says, oh, you think you'll be happy because you have that? You won't. That is God's grace in our life because we will only be truly glad when He is on the throne of our hearts. He was showing them that those things would never satisfy them, the cries of their heart, like He would. As it was once said, it is our folly that we are apt to raise our expectation from the creature and to think tomorrow will be more abundant. The tomorrow, right? Tomorrow will be more, today stunk, didn't work, but tomorrow, that's that crazy thing. But we are commonly disappointed, and the more we expect, the more grievous the disappointment. And that is very simply translation, we never get what we think we're going to get out of the things we worship. Unless that thing is God. When we get the job, it doesn't fulfill like we thought it would. 20 measures is 10. When we get the spouse, I'm married now. Yes! We'll say that it'll satisfy our need of love and acceptance and, I've, and I'm worth something now. It doesn't. 50 measures of 20. When we turn from the Lord, His discipline is the most loving thing that He can do for us. His withholding from, from us, what we think we'll get from those gods we worship, is meant to show us that He can only provide this. If He didn't do this, it would have to mean... That he does not love us. But thanks be to God, his discipline on our lives is an indication that the, the, the very fact that we are not satisfied with the things that we pursue is an indication that God does indeed love you. He is the prize. Not his creation. He's the prize. And if he let the prize be the creation, you'd be missing out he'd be living a second life, a, sec- a secondary life. So, our text shows us that there is a high cost of sin, that sin is contagious, it corrupts, it brings fruitless toil, and secondly, and this is our encouragement, <clears throat> our text shows us the riches of his undeserved favor, and this is in 19, verse 19. Is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing, from, but, from this day onward, I will bless you. One of the great ironies of the Christian life is this. That the moment we surrender to God those things which we think will make our hearts glad, is the moment our hearts become glad. Do you hear that? The moment that we surrender the things to God that we think will make our hearts glad, is the very same moment our hearts will become glad. And, at times, it's also the moment he gives us the thing that we no longer need anymore. How many people can testify to that? you finally surrendered. I don't need and I remember this with marriage you know like when I was single I, don't, I, don't want, to be, I want to be married and you know it's hard I understand I don't mean to sound insensitive it's hard you're, you're, you feel lonely and it's something that you know everyone else around you is doing so you just kind of feel the sense of wanting to have that and then one day you just give it up to God and you just you don't need it anymore it's almost like you don't need it anymore and then two weeks later you're married Because you want to know why God does that? Because if, if, if he gave it to you uh, under that, that previous condition, it would crush you. It would destroy you. Because you're worshipping an idol and that, I, when, when, when you worship an idol and it doesn't fulfill, it becomes your worst enemy. So God, that is God's grace on our lives when he withholds the things that we worship. And then we start to worship him and he says, okay, you can have it now. <laughs> Amen. That God has done that for me many times in my life. This is God's marvelous favor to us. When we finally set down the secret sins, the evil motivations, when we finally stop resisting Him and His sweet pursuit of us, He takes up the task of blessing us at that moment. His special image, the objects of His love, He blesses. The work we do for Him is no longer unclean but pure, it's no longer fruitless but fruitful. It's a beautiful blessing that God gives to us every time. And please mark here, the marvelous and unrelenting grace of God here. Over and over again, Israel had had not gotten this message. The discouragements of life led both to sin, to stop working for God, all these different things. And he didn't hold it against them. He didn't say, I'm done with you. He gives them opportunity after opportunity to come back to him and be blessed by him. He wouldn't say, you know, you're just too dirty. You've just messed up too many times. You've gotten discouraged too many times. You've slowed down too many times. I'm gonna work with someone else now. He doesn't do that. He gives you another chance. He calls out to you again and gives you the opportunity to turn from those things that your heart delights in and turn to him and make your life glad again and useful again. So I don't care what you've done. I don't care where you've been. Today's the day, mark it. Get up, turn to God, follow Him. He forgives and does powerful things when people's heart turn to Him. Can we be those people? Can we be a church like that that doesn't hide sin, worship sin, cherish it, put down our, our toolbox? Can we be honest when we're struggling with something, repent to each other? about it. Live real lives in community and not just hide during the week and come and sit in a chair on Sunday. Can we be those people? Let's do it. That, the, that's the kind of church that sings. That's the kind of church that is powerful in the, in the world that it's in. That God uses. And that's the only way our church will be powerful. And That's the only way your lives will sing individually and personally. That's it. Friend, if you don't know Christ... What keeps you from him? What's charming you? Can you admit that everything that you've pursued in life you've expected 50 measures of wine but there's only been 20? Can you admit that today? Can you admit that only God has the 50? Things that you pursue to fill yourself with meaning and purpose they just don't satisfy, right? You know it. You're sitting here and you know it if you don't know you you can't argue with that you know that that's true you might disagree with me that God is the satisfaction of your soul but you know that it's true that the things that you've pursued have never fulfilled the way that you thought they would can I just ask you to consider today that the Word of God might be right that Jesus Christ is that fulfillment in your life and brothers and sisters in Christ I mean the, the takeaway for us is is very similar To someone who might not know Christ. It's it's not that much different. Have you forgotten how good Jesus is? Do you think that something else is better than his approval and his love and his acceptance of you? Has sin lured you away, seduced you, tricked you? And here's the Lord calling you back. Reminding you that this cherished sin not only pollutes wonderful kingdom work that you could do, but bankrupts your heart. The solution, seek first the kingdom of God. And the moment you do this, there was a part in our text, I, I just blew over it in my notes and I missed it. I want to go back to it. Just give me a second. Oh, wait a minute. Where was it? Oh, I'm, I'm blowing it here. Oh, here it is. From this day on, I will bless you. He doesn't give you a year sentence to pay for what you did. The moment your hearts see Christ and the beauty of Christ, he takes up the task of blessing your life. At that second, it doesn't take time. He does it immediately. Do you want that? Do you want it now? Then let's let's do this together. Let's do this together. He is rich In his favor towards us. Please mark this marvelous and unrelenting grace of God. The the first part of our message was hard. Sin, it's hard to think about what it does to our lives. And how we're responsible for it. But it's so beautiful to remember his unrelenting grace and love for us. Amen? The moment you repent, he will take up the task to bless you. You are not too dirty. Can you also... Can, so, so can we repent of those those sins that kind of seduce us? But can we also repent of thinking that we're just too dirty? But there are two things that keep you from from serving Jesus Christ. You know that? It's sin and guilt. So sometimes you, you recognize oh, sin's a problem. I've got to stop doing that. I, it, it offends God. You know, I, I, I'm I not really receiving the blessing from God because of sin. I, you know, I've got to stop doing it. So you know, a lot of times when you're living in sin, you don't go to church. You know, well, maybe you do, but you're just kind of there physically. Right? You've just checked out. So that's one way of, of turning from the Lord, our own sins. But, you know, that sometimes we stop doing those things because we know that they're wrong. But then the second thing kicks in, and it's guilt. Well, you know, I'm a crumb bum now. Right? I, I don't deserve to be here. So I'll show up, I'll sit in the back, but life just isn't going to be what it was. Lie! Lie! Do you see what this says? The moment that you see the beauty of Christ again, he takes up the task of blessing your kingdom work. Who is he talking to? He's talking to Israel. He's talking to the people that he asked to build the temple. They were busy doing stuff for God. He didn't say, alright, I love you still, but go sit in the back seat because these guys are going to build the temple now. He used the same people that we're messing it up. That speaks to us friends, believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. Today, Mark, is the day when you realize this, he'll use you again and take up the task of blessing your life. Amen? Don't forget that. If that, by the way, if that weren't the case, we're all toast. (laughs) Everybody. Everybody's toast. (laughs) God would use nobody because we all mess up. So consider this. Consider this. Let's take our sins to God, to turn from them, but also repent of our own distrust in God's grace in using us again. It's not our struggle with sin that's contagious, but our love for it, okay? He holds out to us forgiveness. Take it, embrace it, and have his sweet blessing pour over you. From this day forward, I will bless you. From this day forward, I will bless you. We turn now um, to the Lord's table. We, we We participate in the Lord's table from week to week here at Refuge Church. So anyone whose heart is repenting to God of their sin, acknowledging the beauty of Christ, turning to faith in Jesus' death and resurrection as their salvation... Um, and as their savior, and our members in good standing with the local church, walking with the Lord. You can participate with us. You don't have to be a member of our church to participate with us. The the bread is gluten free. Um, For any of you who might have an allergy, so please come up and participate if that's you. What we do here is a little bit different. Uh, David will come back up and do a communion song when he does that. Uh, We just kind of come up to these tables at our own pace. We take a cracker, we dip it um, into the cup. And we we eat it whenever we want to. Okay? So just come come up at your own pace. If you're not a believer, if you just don't feel like um, you should participate for whatever the reason, no one will know um, because of the way we do it. Just stay right there and no one will even know.